Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. All right. Wow, really quick, quick, Lord, for th- thank you for bringing us here tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Um, let us grow deeper in knowledge of you and love for you and uh, love for each other, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Um, we are picking right back up where we left off with Psalm, let me get rid of these. These won't help me. Okay, so we're picking up. In Psalm 4. So, everybody's got Psalm 4 there. Um, we open with a statement. Uh, some Bibles kind of don't even give it a verse number. They just kind of put it at the top. Uh, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a Psalm of David. Um, so we know from this, this is kind of a key for us, to the choir master. So this is supposed to be sung by a group of voices. So this, we can tell, would be a psalm that would be uh, communal. You would expect to sing this in a group of people. Um, Not unlike our Sunday morning worship songs, as opposed to something that might be like the last one that we looked at, Psalm 3. That was probably more poetic. Um, There were no notes for what type of instruments or music. So that would have been more personal, more private. Um, So this is more open, like I said, congregational. Um, The stringed instruments, to note something like that. Um, When you read a psalm and there's no specification of how it's to be played or what it's to be played on, that's kind of open. But when you mention it, it kind of limits the scope. So this was intended for stringed instruments. Uh, And we do see that a lot with David's psalms. He seemed to be very fond of stringed instruments. Um, And that makes sense. They're kind of the most uh, versatile, at least at the time. Um, they could be used in both joyful and mournful occasions. So ideally, to say that this is for stringed instruments probably means it's not a difficult song technically. So like if we had the sheet music for this as opposed to a different one, this one might be more easy to grasp. This is something, uh, the way I think about it is something like this, where it just says choir master, stringed instruments, in our kind of modern worship mentality, you could probably accomplish this song with a guitar and a couple singers. You know, you wouldn't need anything crazy. Um, it's, and of course, this is another one from David. Uh, this one also has, as we looked at in David, that kind of 112 uh, format in how he uh, writes it. I think it's uh, arguably even easier to see in this one. And like I said, just I'm pointing that out again just because when you kind of see that, uh, a lot of the Psalms, specifically David's, become a little easier to get what they're talking about because you can separate the verses for yourself, um, even if you're reading a translation that might not break them out quite well enough. Um, we're using the ESV primarily to teach from for this, uh, and the ESV does a very good job of separating the verses into the actual song verse format that they probably would have inhabited. Um, But like I said, hopefully 
when you kind of get the feel for it, you could see it regardless. Uh, let's see. So we open with, uh, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Um, Oh, I've gotten ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> the, uh, again, to kind of reiterate for the format, um, you should see thing, thing, resolution of that thing. That's what you're looking for. Um, in this case, there'll be kind of be a question or an imploring, and then another question or an imploring, and then uh, something that solidifies a statement or a further extended question that solidifies those prior two. That's what we're looking at in the structure. So when he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress, those are your two kind of introductory statements, and then the solidifier is be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, this first verse might not feel <laughs> quite like that format, like I was saying. It's a little harder to grasp with some of these verses because Hebrew to English doesn't always come across with that same poetic flair. Um, so let's just look at the words for a little bit. So yeah, so answer me when I call, how he starts off there. Um, that is, it's a very interesting thing and a very helpful thing, I think, when it comes to understanding scripture, to look at uh, questions and requests when aimed at God and recognize that not every question aimed at God, especially in the Psalms, is actually for God. The recipient of the question is not necessarily God. So our English, or American, I should say, way to look at this passage might be to say, you know, answer me when I call, oh God, is that he's saying, God, why aren't you answering me? You know, when, uh, when somebody says, remember me, oh God, you know, are they actually saying, God, you've forgotten me? You know, uh, and no, of course not, because God can't forget us. God's, um, he can't. So when we say a question like that, it's more aimed at ourselves. It's a reminder for ourselves. So when somebody says, God, remember me, it's more of saying, it feels like you've forgotten me, but in asking you to remember me, I remind myself that you are not forgetful, that you're not going to forget me, that basically, basically reminding myself that you don't need a reminder kind of a thing. And um, we see that a lot. We're going to see that a lot, I think, in this psalm uh, and plenty throughout the book. Uh, and in other books as well. Um, so yeah, so this first verse, answer me when I call. Uh, some translations will soften this a little bit. They'll change answer to hear, just hear me when I call. Um, but the word that's actually used there in Hebrew, ana, it actually means uh, answer or respond. It's synonymous with testify. Um, and it almost seems a little bold, you know, a little outrageous to demand of God. It's almost like he's saying, you will answer me, kind of a thing. Um, but I think, once again, as I was saying, he knows. He knows who God is. And we see that a lot in David's writing, that he really does know who God is and put him in the right place. So the proper way to understand this is that he's by making a statement to God, quote unquote, he is saying to himself, I know my God answers me. 
So, when he, so answer me, God, when I call. I know that you answer me, God. Um, but uh, in kind of putting in the right place, I don't want to lose the bold phrasing that is used. It is supposed to be worded forcefully. Um, and it, because it, it is a passionate plea. Um, and you'll see that kind of over the course of this particular psalm. It starts out more intense and it kind of softens by the end. We see that again a lot in David's writing. He tends to start out very intense, very passionate, very worried, very sad, very something. And then by the end, he kind of has calmed down and kind of put things in perspective. Um, but with that in mind, look at the second half of that sentence. Um, when he says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. So it's almost like saying, you know, I know that you'll answer me, God, because you are righteous kind of a thing. Um, it's a very good example for us of someone who knows God's power and his own standing before a righteous God. Um, he knows that God is the only source of righteousness for him. That's why he says it that way. So he's reminding himself of these things at the beginning of his plea for help. Um, he says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. That's another facet of him reminding himself of who God is and what he has done. Um, he's, of course, he's not reminding God how God has helped him in the past. God knows how he's helped us in the past. He's reminding himself that God has given him relief in distress previously. Um, and then be gracious and hear my prayer. So you see how that line can be a kind of a summary of the prior two. Um, they're both kind of, the first one is basically asking him to hear him, and the second one is referring to prior graciousness, shall we say. And then he summarizes it, be gracious and hear my prayer. So once again, that idea of a callback for yourself and putting that out there. Um, do we have two and part of three here? Okay. Um, so if we look at two and three, uh, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But I know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. So I think this is uh, an even better example of that formatting, of that one, one, two. And unfortunately, it's going to be difficult to see it here because Easy Worship splits it up um, <laughs> between, like splits it up three in the middle. But um, looking at it from the beginning, uh, he starts by asking two pointed questions to those who oppose him. Um, he asks, how long will you try to turn my honor to shame? And how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Um, some translations will have uh, a little bit closer to the Hebrew, which I kind of like. Um, how long will you love worthlessness? And how long will you seek falsehood? Um, situationally, this could be Another situation where David is on the run that actually happened quite a bit in his life. Um, but if you read this whole chapter, it doesn't seem like he's in any physical danger. This seems more um, like people are plotting against him and spreading lies, that sort of a thing. 
Um, but either way, we have this comparison of those who try to ruin the honor of the godly to those who, uh, or association, I should say, of those who try to ruin the honor of the godly to those who fill their lives with worthless things. So on a personal level, I would say if you've ever been like seriously lied to in a damaging way or lied about, I should say, or if you've had people speak slanderously against you, this is kind of a psalm that might be worth paying attention to. Um, and once again, uh, note that this is not necessarily for the subject of the psalm. The implication is not that the speaker uh, himself was wronged, wrote the song, and then went outside the homes of the people who wronged him and sang this song. You know, <laughs> this isn't aimed at, even though he says, you know, oh men, meaning the men who are against him, how long will you do this? How long will you do this? It's, yeah, it's not like he's going and proclaiming this to them. It's back to himself still at the end of the day. Because um, look at how, well, now I'll jump over. In verse three, but know that the Lord has, there we go, set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Um, two statements questioning out, but once again, reminding oneself of how the wicked are attacking him. The third statement reflects back on himself and how the Lord has saved him in the past. Uh, he knows that these things are true. Um, I would submit that congregationally, the goal for this would probably be that someone singing this, participating in it, would then be, you know, if they find themselves in this situation, they'd be encouraged by the truth of these words. Um, <clears throat> or perhaps that somebody who is doing the lying or the slandering against someone would be convicted if they found themselves in a congregation singing this. Um, but probably more so the, uh, the support because, let's be honest, most people who partake of that kind of activity usually lie to themselves and say this isn't about me when it comes to a scripture that points it out. Um, I'll also point out the, uh, the Salah here. Um, we see this only two times in this uh, particular psalm. Uh, usually you'll see it as a break uh, probably some kind of a musical pause or an instrumental break is probably the best example or explanation as a, uh, for it. Um, so my guess is that this particular verse was meant to have some particular impact. So there'd be a Salah following this one. Uh, moving on. Verses four and five. Do we have those? Yeah, they're both up there. Okay. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. So that first one there, uh, I want to focus on a little bit. I've heard a lot of explanations for this passage. Um, people like to add in different kinds of extra meaning. Um, but honestly, I think it's pretty simple. I think it's fairly self-reflective like everything else. Be angry and do not sin. Um, I think it's literal. I think that's a self-reminder. Uh, the word used there for angry is uh, ragaz. Um, comes from, or I should say, the root word is ragaz. The actual word used there is rigzu, which basically means 
be regaz, like do that thing. And that word means to be agitated, to quiver, but like with anger, to quake, to shake, to be perturbed. Um, It's literally about being upset. And I think in this case, literally about being upset about the lies and slander brought against the the singer. Um, And I think it's a reminder for us to feel your feelings. Uh, Actually acknowledge it. You know, if you're angry, be angry. That's fine. Scripture does not instruct you to lie and pretend you're not angry when you are. You know, nowhere in scripture does it say to push that down, bottle it up, or hide it. That can just hurt you. So acknowledge it. Acknowledge how you're feeling. But the second half of that comes in, do not sin. I think that's the part we miss a lot. We tend to see things kind of in a prohibition era mindset. You're either on one side or the other. You're either going into a thing wildly whole hog or you avoid it outright. So you either suppress your anger or you go off and do something awful. Um, But this is kind of teaching us to reject that way of thinking. You know, be angry, be upset, but temper yourself. Anger is only actually a problem if you let it guide you to do something wrong. Um, So how do we do that? Well, that's where the next line comes in. He kind of gives us an example. Um, Ponder or meditate, as that, that word would mean, Uh, in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Um, So first, I'll mention that that word ponder, which does mean meditate, um, it's not the same meditation that we tend to hear of from the Buddhists or the transcendentalists. Um, It's not about emptying your mind. That's actually kind of dangerous. I'm not gonna do the whole joke about some of us don't have enough to empty and get anything back. But honestly, people who do practice that kind of meditation long enough and deep enough, um, they usually get to a point where they claim that they have these amazing spiritual experiences. Uh, And to a degree, they're right. It's just, it's not God they're interacting with, unfortunately. Um, When we do the world's method of meditation, at best, we hear our own self-affirming thought process, and then we allow our minds to, we allow our minds to warp that into believing that God or the universe or whatever is talking to us. Um, But at worst, we become uh, targets for spiritual attack. So uh, when the Bible talks about meditation, it's not talking about an emptying, it's actually talking about a filling. Um, You fill yourself with the word of God. And it's still really good to do in a place of peace, uh, a place of quiet, um, or a time where you can have some peace and quiet. But the goal is to take in scripture and really think about what it means uh, as presented in context. When we do that, we begin to uh, apply God's word and then what he calls us to do, and we can use that in a more appropriate way. Um, So basically what he's saying is, in this sort of situation, if you're angry, if you're upset, somebody's coming against you, take some time to process. Be still. Be home. Home is safe. Home is not out fighting with the liars. Um, Your bed is a symbol of comfort and privacy. Uh, This is painting a picture of someone who's taking the time to think through their problem and turn to God and bring God into the situation and his word correctly, uh, as opposed to someone who's out and about, potentially making it worse, fighting about it, stirring up trouble. And then we see that Salah again. So I think you're really supposed to 
dwell on these two verses, four and five. Um, I think he really wanted to nail that point home about, yeah, acknowledging your anger, but taking the time to process it in light of God. Um, And then, of course, he caps off this little chunk with offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Um, And the offer right sacrifices, that one I think can be a little, well, I mean, the put your trust in the Lord, that one's easy. I'm guessing I don't have to say a lot on what that means. Um, But the offer right sacrifices can be weird for us, I think, because we don't sacrifice anymore because Jesus was the sacrifice, so that all stopped. Um, But I'd say that there's uh, probably two ways we can look at that and apply it to ourselves today. Um, One, Paul teaches us in the New Testament that we, in one way or another, uh, offer ourselves as sacrifices daily. We live our lives differently with Christ in them. So, offer a right sacrifice, even in light of your affliction. Carry yourself appropriately. Carry yourself as one who has Christ. Let that guide how you behave, how you interact, that sort of thing. Um, Don't let yourself be given to whining and sorrow because you have Christ in you. So you can, you become your human right, shall we say, to fuss and whine and complain is sacrificed in the light of Christ. Uh, The other way to look at it, right sacrifices, I would say that there were probably, well, no, not probably, there were definitely throughout biblical history, tons of false prophets running around. Um, then, uh, all, from then all the way up till now, but back then, a false prophet would teach false sacrifices. They would teach a false sacrifice. Um, if you look up ancient Jewish literature, you actually find a lot of unbiblical superstition and mysticism uh, popping up, even during the time of the better kings and prophets. Uh, and a lot of those practices are actually not that far off from what we would look at today as uh, like voodoo or pagan or Wiccan cults. Um, So I would submit that it's possible that there were people, even then, trying to teach others how to offer sacrifices against their enemies. Sacrifices with incantations and spells attached designed to curse those who wronged you. We even get a few glimpses of this in scripture, like with Balaam, for example, who was hired to prophesy against Israel. That probably would have involved some sort of sacrifice and proclamation against. So a false sacrifice, I would argue there. Um, So, of course, something like that, God would not honor. Of course, a sacrifice outside of his prescribed sacrifices. Because, of course, if you look at the actual sacrifices in Scripture, they're all about humility, repentance before God. None of them are about vengeance. So... I would submit that part of what he's teaching here, it kind of accomplishes the same goal by a different method, is to avoid lashing out, to avoid, you know, plotting, doing something, or plotting under the guise of your faith, uh, because some people like to pull that too, but pointing back to right sacrifices in the way that we would point someone back to right reading of scripture pointing back to that repentance and humility kind of a thing. So both interpretations kind of reach the same goal, but they come from different angles. And uh, I I, I like them both about equally. I don't know which one's more appropriate than the other. 
So let's see, moving on. Six through seven. Uh, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Um, so this one, I think, can be a little tricky because the end of verse six almost feels like, um, it feels like a positive statement of a righteous person and some actually take the parentheses from the first statement to imply that this, the second part here uh, of verse six itself, I mean, that verse six I'm offering as a whole and people will separate it into, or they, they will offer it as a whole, I'm separating it into two parts. That's where I was getting at. <laughs> um, I'm submitting that verse six is actually two statements. Um, of the many who are ignorant of properly following God. And then verse seven as the third in this little chunk is a reflection of a life not hindered in that manner. So that's the thing. I don't think it would make sense to shift the narrative um, by lumping those together. It doesn't seem to fit. So let me just go through it and we'll see if I can kind of explain this. Um, so there are many who say, who will show us some good? So whoever's asking this question does not see themselves in a good situation and they're longing for something better. So they then say, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. It's a plea. But I would submit that because it's, it should be linked to that prior portion, there are many who say that many is definitely implied to be those against uh, David, as he's writing this psalm. So those people who are against him are crying out, who will show us some good and lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Um, basically, he's describing the state of the world, constantly asking for God's blessing, but not actually being in it or refusing to accept it when it's offered. And I think that's where verse seven comes in where it says that uh, you've put more uh, joy in my heart uh, than when they, than they have when their grain and wine abound. So now he's separating himself. The, all of verse six is an us, and seven talks about the they. So that's why, I, and I'm only saying that because some translations, like I said, they do take that second half and insist that he's saying both of them uh, to himself. But, the implication here, I think, is that they are reveling in their grain and wine, as he says there, that he, doesn't, uh, he has more joy in the Lord than in those things. And then, of course, he contrasts that by saying that's not necessary for him. Um, and, of course, the grain would be an implication of full storehouses. That's a sign of plenty. It's uh, arguably a sign of wealth, you could say, uh, having a full bank account or having the best food or entertainment um, and the wine abounding, um, that's self-explanatory, wine's wine. <laughs> um, not that there's any scriptural prohibition on grain and wine abounding. We can enjoy those things, that's fine. Uh, we can enjoy financial security, choice foods. Um, we can enjoy wine. We can enjoy these things, but the contrast is that those people who are seeking good 
and not getting it and who are, it's that lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, is almost ignorant. It's almost half-hearted. It's as though they're saying that with their mouths, but they're living for their grain and their wine. Um, they're putting their faith in the things as opposed to him who made the things. Um, and then he caps it off here with verse 8. No, that's not it. That's a different. Oh, I'm at the bottom. It keeps jumping in the bottom. There we go. Okay. <laughs> uh, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Um, he breaks his format here to close it off. That's also normal. You usually have your kind of drive the message home uh, verse or like stinger, almost like a bridge in a normal song, but that's what you're closing it with. Um, and it usually does break format. Um, and so once again, see how far he's come from the problem. He was kind of complaining, speaking very forcefully at the beginning, and now he's addressing that he, you know, he's talking about being able to sleep with peace, um, to, to have, basically have peace now, uh, because the Lord is bringing safety. The issue isn't resolved. You know, he's not saying that he got what he asked for. Um, people are still dragging his name through the mud or, or even after him, depending on the situation. But it doesn't matter because his trust is in the Lord. So the whole point that, once again, he's reminding himself of everything over the course of it, and he caps it off with, all right, I've got it. I'm there. I've, I've done a good job of, yes, that's right. I, I put, put myself in the right place and put God in the right place, and now I can have peace, even though trouble is abounding. So that's the whole point, the whole gist. Um, and yeah, you'll see that, like I said, you'll see that a lot in his Psalms. So let's move on to number five. Okay. <clears throat> so this one, um, I'm going to try doing this to see if I can access this easier. <laughs> I'm not trying to be like lazy or anything, but it's just, I think this will be, I'm going to try and see if this will be easier. All right. So in five, um, we talked about the choir master, we talked about the strings, but now this one says it's for the flutes. So the flute was actually um, often used to bring a mournful air, um, especially when used alone. So if you would just say this song particularly is, mm, pardon me, is for flutes, it's probably of a somber tone. Um, the flute was most commonly associated with funerals. There's actually some sources um, in early rabbinic writings that insist that there should be no less than two flute players and one woman hired to lament at any funeral. Uh, even for the, and that's for the poorest person should, have, should be afforded this kind of like mournful uh, uh, support. <laughs> right. Two flutes and one woman screaming and wailing. So, <laughs> so this, like I said, this would suggest that this is supposed to have a mournful feel to it. Um, we do, did I say that already? We do also see the flute sometimes in weddings, um, which I thought was a little odd. Not as much as, like it's definitely more associated with funerals and all the sources that I could see, um, but it does also have this wedding association, which I kind of think 
might be due to the, the, there's a slight mournful quality to a wedding in that the two people are leaving, they're breaking away from families to start their own family. So there is, even though there's rejoicing and there's probably all kinds of other music, there is that air of mournfulness to it as well. Um, at least as, as I understand it, I think that's what they're getting at. So here we have, uh, this is basically a five verse song of mournful tone. Uh, it follows the same structure as before, but it's longer, definitely significantly longer phrases. Um, hopefully you're seeing the pattern from the last one. I don't think I'm gonna dwell on it too much moving forward, um, but you, you'll probably be able to pick it out uh, a little bit as we go through it. Uh, I will say some Bibles or Bible commentaries actually build uh, five, musically anyway, as two large verses. Um, Spurgeon actually was of that mindset when he wrote his commentary on the Psalms, which, and of course, his commentary on the Psalms is really good. I actually used it a lot while I do my preparation for this, but I just wanted to point that out to show how over time, we're still learning things about scripture. Um, at his time, they just had the words and maybe the punctuation. So it was their interpretation that, okay, well, I think it's a theme like this chunk here and then this chunk here. And he basically just made it a two-verse song. Um, but over time, as we understand things better, as we start to understand Hebrew poetry, and sometimes when we get you know, better copies, like I'm sure the Dead Sea Scrolls probably brought a lot of uh, information out too, we start to be able to break things up a little easier as well. So... This one kicks off. Uh, we'll do one to three. Uh, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Um, give ear to my words. Again, of course, not that he's reminding God. He's reminding himself. Uh, consider my groaning. Uh, groaning, I wanted to spend time on this because groaning is a word that tends to get hijacked in our culture today, especially by the more hyper-charismatic denominations. Uh, they like to use the word groaning in scripture to suggest unearthly languages. Uh, in context, groaning is almost always associated with pain. The sick and the wounded groan in pain either because they cannot speak out of pain or they recognize that no words are actually gonna help at this point, but they have to release the pain somehow, which is scientifically proven. Like, I don't know if you know this, but if, if you're about to be in pain or if you're in pain, if you shout or make a loud noise, it does tend to up your pain tolerance. It does tend to release, so there's some chemical release in your brain that briefly numbs the pain for you or at least dials it down. This is why a lot of times when people are like going crazy at the gym and they're just like it's that, it's that process of making a noise to suppress the pain that they're feeling. Um, little experiment you can try if you want. If you take a bowl, fill it with ice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Grown it If you take a bowl, fill it with ice and then fill it with water, uh, and then put your hand in and see how long you can hold it there. Um, try it once without making a sound. You will not get very far. Try it with your other hand, shouting and just screaming and whatever. Um, you'll go much longer. Almost guaranteed that'll work for you. Um, just to say, so to verify that, yeah, groaning 
pain release, stress release. Uh, when the Bible speaks of groaning, it is referring to this natural response that comes from pain or distress. Um, and as such, we kind of get an idea of where David is, at least emotionally, writing this song. Um, it's, it's for those to be remembered, uh, for, for, it's to be remembered by those in distress or pain, um, whether physical or emotional or spiritual. Um, it's, it's to help with that. Uh, he says, give attention uh, to the sound of my cry, uh, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. Um, not even through the first two lines, and we're hit with this mental refocusing here. Uh, groaning in pain and sorrow, but calling out to my king, to my God, um, to the one that I pray to. Um, it's the only, the only resource you have, really, at the end of the day. Who are you going to call to? God. That's, that's where you put your faith. That's why he goes right to it. You're groaning in pain, right to calling out to God. Um, in the morning, you hear my voice. I prepare a sacrifice to you. Uh, not that God can only be reached in the morning, of course, but the idea that what you do in the morning sets the tone for your day. That's what he's kind of getting at. How do you start? Um, in the morning, he calls to God, and he acknowledges that he knows God hears him. Uh, Spurgeon actually took it a step further on this in his commentary, saying, uh, this is not so much a prayer as it is a resolution. Uh, he says, my voice shalt thou hear. I will not be silent. I will not withhold my speech. I will cry to thee for the fire that dwells within compels me to pray. Uh, meaning as opposed to more worthless endeavors uh, when one is in stress or pain. Um, and look at the end of that phrase. Uh, I prepare a sacrifice and watch, or and wait, depending on some translations. Uh, he starts the day with that focus on God, but then he watches as he waits for the response. Not that he necessarily expects to receive it over the course of that day, that 24-hour period, um, but the rest of his day is in contemplative focus on God. He's not flippantly requesting something of God, like sending off a spiritual email and then just walking and shutting the computer down. He's essentially keeping the lines of communication open. Um, Thomas Brooks said, I thought this was really good, he is either a fool or a madman that shoots many an arrow to heaven but never minds where they land. Um, and that's, that's what he's getting at here. It's like, yes, you know, call, you're in pain, call out to God. You're in stress, call out to God. But keep your mind on God. Keep focused on him. Why? Because that'll get you in the right place to see what he does. Um, moving on. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Um, oh, I think I've got one more. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Um, so you're not a God who delights in wickedness. This seems like a duh statement to us right now. But uh, you find me any other religion with gods or with a God that does not promote some sort of wickedness as virtue. I submit that you cannot. Um, especially at the time, the surrounding Middle Eastern gods that the local cultures worshipped promoted sexual promiscuity, human sacrifice, uh, greed, conquest, so on and so on. 
But even throughout history, the Greco-Roman gods are basically just superpowered perverts. Um, the, uh, the, the Hindu gods, the hundreds of those, most of them are horribly blood, bloodthirsty and vicious. Um, even, even Allah, if you look at the God of the Quran, um, in the Quran, Allah declares himself the greatest liar in history or in existence. Yeah. So uh, the, the statement is a reminder to the singer that our God is fully set apart from those things. He will not dwell in those things. He will not approve of those things. Um, evil may not dwell in you. Um, not only does he not delight in wickedness, evil can't even approach his person. It can't dwell in him. It can't dwell near him. Um, he's so, God is so good that the idea of his partaking of evil is an impossibility. Um, he says, the boastful shall not stand. Uh, this is one of those verses, the boastful shall not stand, I think it's in your presence, before your eyes. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. This is another verse, I think, that gets hijacked to imply that God is unable to look on evil, like unable, like physically can't. And the reason that people do that is to then build this thing where, well, God had to actually turn away from Jesus on the cross. And then usually they go as far as to say Jesus then went down into hell and suffered. Um, but it's, it's a very modern misreading of the text. Uh, those sorts of things are not taught anywhere in scripture. Um, the idea is that of judgment, that when you say stand before, there is kind of an unspoken implication of, in a judging sense, how you will stand before a judge. Um, and so the idea is that these people, the boastful, they cannot stand before his eyes. They cannot stand up to his judgment, basically, is what he's saying. Um, because he says, you, you hate all evildoers, which is, okay, that's, that's fair. Nothing special to add to that one. Um, how far am I here? <clears throat> Uh, and he says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Um, so it's, also, it's a self-reminder, of course, not to give in to these types of wickedness, as is usually the temptation when this sort of affront comes against us, is to give in to um, lies, to give in to boastfulness, to give in to, in the extreme cases, especially back then, bloodthirstiness, deceit, to kind of get our way and get out of what's attacking us. Um, but it's also a reminder to us that those people who are doing those things are in danger of judgment. They currently stand under judgment for their behavior. Um, I'd also point out David is not praying against specific people. He's not uh, addressing a particular attacker against him. Um, it's, he's praying against the thing that he understands God to be against. Uh, and I think for us as New Covenant, New Testament believers, um, there should be a further prodding on our souls, I think, with this passage. This is a reminder that our enemies will not be able to stand before the Lord. So this should soften our hearts toward them. Yes, we pray for vindication, absolutely. We see that throughout Scripture to ask for justice. Um, justice is, is perfectly reasonable. But at the same time, we should be hoping and praying that God will also reveal himself to our enemies. Um, because as much as they may hurt us, we'd rather they, that not be 
paid back with the torment of hell, you know, with the separation from God. I would submit that there's no earthly crime so great that we should feel good about that punishment, especially if we're believers, um, saved from our sins. Uh, Moving on, uh, seven and eight. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So through the abundance of your steadfast love, David knows his salvation lies in the Lord. So he takes entering God's house as a given. Um, But look at how he receives it. Not through any work of his own, but through God's abundance of love. Uh, I would submit that even all the way back here in the Psalms, hundreds of years before Jesus explained the fulfillment of the law, we have a foreshadowing of the fact that we're saved by grace, not works. He understands that he only enters God's presence through God's love. Um, I will bow down in the fear of you. Uh, Fear is another word I think we trip over a lot because we don't want to do any theological heavy lifting in the church sometimes. Um, We like perfect love casts out all fear, but we don't want to wrestle with fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. Um, We try to suggest that they're like two different words sometimes, but they're not. (laughs) It's the same word, though it frequently is also used in the sense of reverence. The word does at its root mean dread or fear. Um, So how do we connect that with a God who presents himself as perfect love? Uh, I would say that the point is that God is not to be approached with the same emotional mentality as another human. Uh, When we relate to a human boss or parent or authority figure, there is a measure of quote-unquote fear, even if we love or respect the person, I would say. Why? Because they have an authority over us. If we've done wrong, they can punish us accordingly um, or unaccordingly, as humans tend to do. Um, But often with humans, that fear is minimalized in proportion to our love for that person. So, for example, if you are working for a family member and you have a good relationship with that family member, you're probably going to feel less fear when approaching them than you would, uh, you know, a a boss who you have no real connection with other than they're your boss. So we should kind of take that and magnify that a bit on both ends. Yes, God is perfect love, but he's also so holy that that respect needs to be there at the same time. Um, The authority, God's authority is perfect. Not just meaning perfectly used, but perfect in scope, in grandness. Um, Yeah, I'm just repeating myself. Um, C.S. Lewis actually put it very well in Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, where to really simplify this, one of the kids asks if Aslan the lion is uh, safe as he is a lion. And the response is basically like, oh, no, he's not safe. He's good, but he's not safe. Um, and I think that's, that's a good reminder for us with God, too. Um, so, yeah, so David's teaching us here to approach the Lord with an appropriate fear, which should cause a respect through which proper understanding of God can lead to him showing us a fuller picture of his love then. Um, and then... Uh, because of my enemies, leave me in your righteousness, because of my enemies, make a way straight for me. I think the because of my enemies can sometimes feel a little odd, um, but I think the way we should put that is, or like how we'd say it in kind of an English vernacular, because my enemies have so distressed me, 
Um, it caused my focus to shift. Please, Lord, help me get back to following your will, not mine. That's kind of the gist of what he's getting at. Um, nine and 10. For, is that up here? No, okay. Um, for there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Um, their inmost self is destruction. I think this is a perfect descriptor of the person who does fully reject God. To be in full opposition to God is not only to invite destruction onto oneself, but to be in a destructive relationship with God's world. Uh, the further one gets from God, the more damage they call, uh, cause the world around them and others around them in one way or another. Um, the phrase, the throat is an open grave, we do see this imagery pop up several times in Scripture. And um, I want to jump on this just because I think the natural image we have is of a freshly dug grave, right, in a graveyard, um, which would make sense because that's how we bury our dead. Uh, and then so we take this, the throat is an open grave, and we have this image of a person falling into that and then having trouble getting out or getting stuck. Um, and that's not a bad way to look at it necessarily, um, as the words of an evil person can indeed trap them in such a way. But our burial methods come from later European cultures, the whole digging holes and piling rocks and such. Much paler people came up with those methods. Um, the Hebrew method, noted all the way back to the time of Abraham, involved a mountain or a great stone formation and carving a room into it. Uh, the dead were then left in one place to decompose, and then after a while, the bones were placed in small boxes or containers and stored together in a separate area. So the cave would also generally have a large stone, either carved into a, a round shape, or it would be, sometimes it would be square, but it would be on like wooden posts so that it could roll somewhat easy. So like one or two people could often even be able to, to open it. Um, not easy to enter, but reasonably simple to enter. Now, add on to that picture the Levitical laws that stated that if you're dealing with dead bodies and or the place of the dead, um, you became unclean. You became ceremonially unclean for a period of time. So that's the image you should have for this statement. Um, the throat of the wicked uh, is an open grave so the, the words that the wicked say is like an unclean thing that has not been sealed. And so therefore, all who pass by it run the risk of becoming unclean. So it's not so much that they're digging a pit that they're going to fall into. It's that they go around spreading their uncleanness. That's what that phrase would really mean. Uh, so beware of them for that. Um, and that's why it then goes on to say that they flatter but they flatter with their tongue. So open grave, they flatter with their tongue. It's how, it's how they spread. They use their words to spread their wickedness. Um, so beware of their flattery because it's not meant to help you. It's meant to make you dirty like they are. Basically, that not everyone who tells you what a great job you're doing or how great you are actually means you well. Uh, sometimes, yeah, so be careful when it comes to drinking up the praise of others. Um, once again, Spurgeon in his commentary um, compared uh, the, the wicked in this scenario to anteaters with a long, smooth, sticky tongue. 
Uh, and he said, a smooth tongue is a great evil. Many have been bewitched by it. There be many human anteaters with their long tongues coated with oily words, entice and entrap the unwary and make their gain thereby. When the wolf licks the lamb, he's preparing to wet his teeth in its blood. Um, so yeah, I thought that was worth diving into. Um, when he says, uh, make them bear, am I past this already? I When he says, make them bear their guilt, um, let them fall, cast them out, all these statements of punishment upon the wicked, um, but look at the clincher there at the end. Um, why is he saying all this upon them? Uh, is he saying because they've harmed me? <laughs> because they've made me feel bad? No, he says, basically, put your punishment upon them because they've rebelled against you. Um, when someone comes against us, it's good practice to stop and see first, of course, if there's any truth in the accusations, because even if it was brought in a wrong or hurtful way, um, it's good for us to learn to grow and to correct ourselves if necessary. But if we are attacked and the attack is fully unfounded, stop and take the time to recognize that potentially this person may actually be rallying against not you but God, or, or railing against not you but God. Um, when we get ourselves out of the focus and remember that everything points back to God, everything either is praising or denying God at the end of the day, um, if we can get that mindset, it can be easier not to let these things eat us up when we're attacked. Um, finishing it off with 11 and 12, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you for you bless the righteous, O Lord, for you cover him with favor as a shield. Um, by and large, general reminder of praise. Praise God regardless of the circumstances because God is with us. He protects us even if our earthly circumstances are painful. Um, I love, uh, once again, because I love Spurgeon, uh, a quote he had is, they laugh first and weep ever after. We weep now but shall rejoice eternally in talking about the difference between us and the non-believer. Um, and that last phrase there, uh, I want to look at for a little bit. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Um, I think this can be overly easy for us to put the focus on the shield and ignore the favor. Um, what does God's favor actually grant us? Uh, wasn't Jesus favored of God? Wasn't Stephen favored of God? Wasn't he within God's favor? Um, surely I would submit that they both were, yet pain and death came to them both. So what does this mean, uh, to be shielded in his favor? Um, I would submit the idea here is that God's favor falls upon those who trust in him, who dwell in him. Uh, for us, under the new covenant, uh, for those who have accepted Jesus and his perfect work on the cross and resurrection, we are within God's favor, meaning that we are his and we have the assurance of salvation. That is upon us like a shield. No spiritual or physical attack can ever take that away from us, even though we can be persecuted and die in the flesh. Our shield of his favor is our eternal security. That's what that's referring to. Um, um, and I'll say, does anybody have any questions on four or five? All right, so for Psalm 4, verse 6, uh, when it says, many, Lord, are, many, Lord, are asking who will bring us prosperity, 
Mm -hmm. It says Google brings prosperity. That's in quotations. Yep. And then the next line, let the light of your face shine upon us. Shine upon us is not. So is that let your face shine upon, upon us coming from the many or not? It is. It is. A lot of earlier translations break that apart. That's kind of what I was re referring to earlier. Um, the first part of six, who will show us some good or who will do that sort of thing. Um, they'll put quotes at the end of that. But a lot of current translations actually put the quotes at the end of uh, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Um, and that's, that's kind of how I aimed at presenting it, that it's both of those things are being said by the people who are ignorant of God who are focused on their, their earthly things. So even the lift up the light of your face upon us is supposed to be an ignorance statement. Um, like, hey, God, do this. Why aren't you doing this when they're not actually doing anything to deserve that? Any, uh, any other questions? All right, well then, uh, thank you all for coming. <laughs> thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.